All right, um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Today we're introducing a uh, new series um, called Legacy in the Making. And for the next several weeks, we're going to dive in and explore what is the legacy of the church. And so to get us started, I just wanted to play a little word, ga- word association game with you. And what I'm going to do is we're going to have a picture come up on the, the screen. And I want you to, to say the first word that comes to mind when you see that picture, okay? And, and I don't want you to just say the word in your mind, right? This is a full participation game, so shout it out, okay? All right, everybody ready? Yes. All right, first slide. <laughs> I heard basketball. What did you say, greatness? <laughs> That's awesome. All right, next slide. Tiger Woods. What was that? <laughs> okay, uh, next one. Okay, yeah, I heard mostly president. A couple things I heard I won't say. Um, <laughs> next one. That's Steve Jobs, by the way, if you don't know. So, yeah, Apple, yeah, that's pretty easy. Uh, all right, next slide. All right, now this is Jesus, and I know I couldn't get the real picture, but this is as close <laughs> as I could get. Um, it's better than the one I grew up with because in our house um, we had this picture of Jesus that hung on the wall. And he had, like, this glowing halo, and, and he had blonde hair and blue eyes, and he had a glowing heart, kind of like Tony Stark without his Iron Man suit. <laughs> it was so weird, right? But this is as close as I could find. So when you see Jesus, what do you think? Love. Love? Compassion? Yeah. Good. All right. Next slide. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? That little delay, and y'all just said church which that is a church, but what do you think when you hear, when you see the word, hear the word church? But that little, I like, I noticed there was a little delay when you guys saw that picture, and it was like, and that's what I want to talk about, right? Um, I, I also spent some time just talking to various people and asking them to, uh, like when I said the word, get to respond, right? And what was interesting, what I discovered is that when you ask someone to say one word, when they hear the word Jesus, and then you say the word church, typically the, the two words are not the same, which is kind of sad, right? Because we, we're supposed to be the extension of Jesus here in the earth, right? We are the body of Christ. We're his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece. We are the extension of Jesus. But the world at large typically doesn't see Jesus when they see the church, I mean, ideally, when people see the church, they should think the same thing. When they, or they hear the word church, they should say love, right? Because what did Jesus say? They will know you are my disciples by what? Yeah. Remember that old song um, that was popular back in the 70s and 80s? They will know we are Christian. Come on. By our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not what most people think when they hear the word church. Because the legacy of the church has been in question. And so, as we spend the next few weeks talking about the legacy of the church, there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. First of all, number one, there is a legacy that exists for the past 2,000 years of the church. 
for some of those seasons, the legacy has been really, really great, right? But other seasons, not so great. Like, there are some of you who you really don't like the legacy of the church, right? You may even be embarrassed by the church, even though you come to church, right? I mean, that when people ask you about church, you're kind of embarrassed to admit that you're a part of one. And so you just, like, tack on some qualifiers, like, yeah, um, I do go to church, but it's not like, it's a, it's a different church, right? It's not like maybe the church you're used to, right? Has anybody ever done that before? Yeah. I, uh, there was a season in my life where I was really embarrassed by the church because we had, I, I got saved in this one church, and it was a great church, it was huge, it was growing like crazy, it was so dynamic, and, and it was awesome, and then later on, the, the bigger it got, the more things started happening, until one day, there was this expose on ABC News where our pastor was just, like, dragged through the mud, and, and rightly so, because he was involved in things that he shouldn't have been. So, you know, for a long time, I was kind of embarrassed to say that I was part of the church, right? Um, so there is a legacy that exists for the past 2,000 years of the church. But the second and most important thing that we need to keep in mind is that the legacy of the church isn't finished yet. Right? There's a part that's still unwritten, and we actually get to be a part in writing our portion of the legacy. And my prayer is that here at Life Journey, that we would leave, leave a legacy that not only would... Jesus be proud of, but would glorify God. And honestly, when you think about what the church really is, I mean, we should be really proud that we're a part of it, right? I mean, the church is a community of people who follow the teachings of Jesus, who was sent by God to explain God and make a way to God, right? We follow Jesus who, who, who said, I can bring all of the commandments down, I can boil them all down into two. And, and he said, I want that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love people as yourself. Love other people as yourself. To the extent that you even love your enemies. Right? And so the church is simply a group of people who say, yes, we put our trust in Jesus because he made it, he made a way for our salvation. And then our goal is to become more, more like him every day, to follow him to, into a life of loving God and loving people to the point that we even love our enemies. And so the church, by definition, is something we should all be proud to be a part of. But because the church is made up of people, we can either leave behind a legacy that is good or not so good. We can submit to the leadership of Jesus and write a legacy that would glorify God or we can wreck the legacy of the church by following our own selfish desires and agendas. So I want to look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. This part of the chapter is a prayer that Paul prayed. Um, and I want to read through this prayer, and, we'll, and the point I really want to point out is what's at the end. Uh, Ephesians 3, beginning with verse 16. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. 
Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. And this is the part I want you to see. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. What does that mean, glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations? Glory to him simply means that God gets the glory, right? So he's praying here that God would get all the glory. Paul prays that God would be glorified in the church and in, in, in Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Now, there's no doubt that, that God is glorified in Jesus, right? Because everything he did was to point people to God and make a way to him. The question is, is the church glorifying God? And what does that actually mean for us to glorify God? Turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Some people might think to glorify God means that we sing praise and worship to him, you know, like we did here this morning. And while I think that does glorify God, I think it's only a very small part. Others might say that glorifying God means you give him all the credit when something good happens, right? Uh, like when someone says, hey, way to go for landing that new job. And then you might say something like, well, I can't really take credit because, you know, the glory goes to God because he's my provider, right? And yes, that does glorify God. But again, it's only a small part. Listen to what Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians. And this is kind of a long passage. Uh, again, the, the thrust is at the end, but the whole context is really important. So we're going to begin with chapter, yeah, 2 Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 7. It says, the old way with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face, for his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this very day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed 
only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that, with that veil and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And notice verse 18. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. Isn't that an awesome passage? What we have to realize, if we're talking about glory and we're trying to say, okay, how am I going to glorify God? What we have to realize is that we are incapable of manufacturing any glory for God. I mean, think about that. If we can't take credit for anything because in him we move and live and have our being, not to mention that everything we have has been given to us by God, and you know, including our gifts and our talents and our abilities, right? If we can't take credit for anything, then how on earth can we manufacture any glory for God? Right? And then how would that really play out, right? Like say that was possible that you could manufacture something and give God glory somehow. And then how would that, I mean, what, you know, what, how would that kind of play out where we'd be like, hey, you see that glory God's getting? I did that. I mean, right? We wouldn't mess it up. If it was possible we could do it, we wouldn't mess it up with our own pride, right? Um, it just doesn't work. So we are incapable of manufacturing any amount of glory for God. The only way we can really glorify God is to simply reflect his glory. This is what this passage is talking about. Verse 16, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. I like the way Dallas Willard puts what it means to glorify God. He says, to glorify God means to think and act in such a way that the goodness, greatness, and beauty of God are constantly obvious to ourselves and to those around us, which is exactly what this passage in Corinthians said, right? He said, so all of us who had the veil removed can see and reflect. He says, that it's constantly obvious to ourselves and those around us. That we can see it and we're reflecting it. Then he says, I think it means, he says, it means to live in such a way that when people see us, they think, thank God for God, if God would create such a life. Man, what a great description of glorifying God, right? That someone would look at you and the way that you live or the way that you do relationships or the way that you, you run your business and they just stop and say, thank God for God that he would create someone like that. Now translate that to the church, right? Because the church is a community of people who are capable of glorifying God, right? And let's just take our church, for example. Like, like someone would look at Life Journey Church and say, wow, 
you know, I don't even know if I believe what those people believe, but, but thank God for God for putting them in our community. You know, what, where would our community be without that extension of Jesus? That's what Paul is praying for here, that the church would bring glory to God. Now, the problem is that when you step into a real, living, breathing church, they're a mess, right? <laughs> and the people inside of them are a mess. And no one knows this better than the person who prayed this prayer, Paul himself. I mean, if you read the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, you see that he's dealing with so much garbage because they are so messed up, right? People were in incorporating all kinds of crazy pagan rituals into their worship, there was, he was having to deal with sexual immorality in the churches. They were ignoring the needs of the poor. They were abusing alcohol during communion. During communion. I mean, most of you reserved that for Friday or Saturday night, but they were doing it during communion, right? <laughs> they were getting drunk in the midst of communion. So the first century church had all these problems, right? And yet Paul still prays and thereby lays out this expectation that the church would bring glory to God. So how do we reflect the glory of God? If God gets glory in the church by the church being a reflection of his glory, then what do we need to focus on? What do we need to pour every bit of our time, energy, and resources into? I want to give you two very broad categories this morning and these would be the categories that we're going to unpack and work through uh, as we move along in this series. But I believe these are two things that we need to pour every bit of our time, energy, and resources into. The first one is this. The church must have a radical commitment to the good news of Jesus. Right? Remember that passage in 2 Corinthians that contrasted the old way with the new way that we just read? Verse 11 said, so if the old way which has been replaced was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which remains forever? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the good news of Jesus. And this good news of Jesus announced the new way. Right? It's the new way to relate to God through, through the gospel. What better way to glorify God than being in a reflection of the new way? Right? That we would be saved and, and be completely changed and transformed like the way that passage in Corinthians ended. And, and we're just constantly being made into his image. And then we proclaim that good news to others. What better way to glorify God? Um, what better way to glorify God than being a reflection of the new way? Um, Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First the Jew and then the Gentile. Do you guys realize that um, the church itself never saved anyone? Do you guys realize that, that a church program never saved anyone? That our church music, as good as it is, never saved anyone? Right? There's only one thing that God has infused his power into for the saving of souls, and that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have been commissioned 
to go out and share that awesome news, right? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who, is, who has never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made, with, made right with God through Christ. That's the message. That's the message we bear. We are bearers of good news, guys. And when we proclaim this news that has the power to save, God is glorified in the church. So if our part of the church's legacy that we're in the process of writing is to glorify God, then we must have a radical commitment to the gospel of Jesus. But the legacy of the church will always be in question if we get distracted from proclaiming the good news. Right? And we've seen it happen. When a church becomes all about a building and loses the gospel message, that doesn't glorify God. When a church becomes all about a program and loses sight of the gospel message, that doesn't glorify God. It's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? Especially in our culture, when we have so much to be distracted by. One of my favorite books that had probably one of the most, the, the largest impact on me as God was sort of calling us into planning this church was a book called uh, The Forgotten Ways by Alan Hirsch. And um, there's one part in the beginning of the book where he describes what happened in China um, over the course of about um, 20 years. And uh, let me just sort of read what it says here. It says, in the late 1950s, China, under the leadership of Mao Zedong, launched its cultural revolution, which included the systemic purge of all religion from society. Its explicit aim was to obliterate Christianity and all religion from China. At that time, there were an estimated 2 million Christians in China, all of which were driven underground because it was illegal to hold a church service. More than 20 years later, after Mao Zedong's death, Christian missionaries were allowed to go back into the country, and they expected to find a completely decimated church, that this, what the two million people that were there just kind of shriveled away to almost nothing. But when they, but when they got there, they, they discovered that in the course of a little over 20 years, two million Christians grew to be 60 million Christians. Isn't that amazing? How did that happen? Right? There was no church building. There was no, there was no church services. There was no... No worship teams, no, no children's programs, no drama ministry. The church had nothing, and yet it thrived. Well, I wouldn't say they didn't have nothing. They had the gospel, which is really all you need. They had the gospel, and that's, I mean, when you strip church down to that, we glorify God, because there's nothing left to get in the way and be distracted, right? So the church must have a radical commitment to the gospel of Jesus. And the second thing, the church must have a courageous demonstration of love. 
the most courageous demonstration of love throughout all of history is without a doubt God's demonstration of love towards us through Christ. Amen? Amen. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And you know what? Jesus asks, asks us to, dis, to demonstrate that same courageous love. How do we know that? Because in John 13, Jesus told his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Right? So you must love one another. By all this, men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. This statement has got to be the most monumental shift in all of history. For centuries, all throughout the Old Testament period, and all throughout the life of Jesus even, the command of love was to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Because that was the best frame of reference that people had for loving another person. Jesus even had a discussion with the, the religious experts about it. Remember? Remember this in Matthew 22? Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And you know, sometimes when, sometimes I think we forget the context of this discussion, right? That what Jesus said there, sometimes I think people think that that's his command to us. The way I hear people talk sometimes. Sometimes I think that's his, they think that's his command to us. No, he was having a discussion with, he was having a discussion about the law with an expert of the law who didn't have good motives for questioning, right? He's talking about the law here. But for those of us who follow Jesus, it's no longer love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, I give you a new command to love your neighbor or to love each other how? As I have loved you. And the reason he was able to do that it's because he became the new frame of reference on how we love other people. He demonstrated for us how we love other people. It was a courageous, bold love that the world had never seen before. And that love that he asked us to, to love with is far more costly than loving my neighbor as myself. Right? I can find all kinds of loopholes. I hate myself one morning, right? I don't have to love anybody that day. <laughs> it's far more costly and it's far more courageous to love people the way Jesus loved us. Because while we were still sinners, he died for us. That's the kind of love we have to demonstrate if we're going to glorify God in the church. And Jesus said, by this, 
all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So we must have a courageous demonstration of love because the legacy of the church will always be in question if we fail to love others the way Jesus loves us. So will God be glorified in Life Journey Church? I hope and pray so. But it will only happen as we reflect God's glory through a message that has the power to save and a love that never fails. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for your amazing grace, your never-ending mercy, and your abounding love towards us. thank you, God, that in our lifetime we have the opportunity to glorify you. I thank you, God, that you trusted in us enough to be the caretakers of the church in our generation. pray, Father God, that we would do exactly as your word says, that we would glorify you by reflecting your glory, not by trying to manufacture something or build our own kingdom or, or make the best programs or build the best church. Or it's all garbage. The only way we can truly glorify you, God, is by reflecting your glory. I pray, God, a very bold prayer that you would strip us down to what's most essential. That we wouldn't put on airs and have pretension and, and try to make us seem, seem better than we really are. But that we would allow your transforming power to change us. That when people look at us, they see Jesus. When people look at this church, they see the love of Jesus. Because that's how we're going to be, that's how we're going to give glory to you, God. So God, we pray that as we move forward and dig a little deeper in this series, God, that you would change us. That you would help us to see in a completely different way, God help us to see opportunities to be a reflection of your glory in everything we do and with every person we meet. We thank you, God, for these things. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen. Amen.